Hello, I'm your host Josh Charig, and welcome to A History of Heavy Metal in 100 Songs, Episode 9. Today we'll be discussing 21st Century Schizoid Man. If you want to get in touch, you can contact me via Twitter on at AHOHM100. I'll also be sharing extra resources here. This is a song I've known for as long as I can remember. I think my mum has In the Court of the Crimson King on vinyl. She used to work for Mellotron back in the day and they gave that record to her. But it's just one of these songs I listened to growing up. I'm really pleased I get to talk about it, as it's an important song in the metal canon, not just to me, but many others as we'll see. If you've not heard this song before, or it's been a while since you have, pause the podcast, give it a listen, and come straight back. In 1967, two brothers, drummer Michael and bassist Peter Giles, teamed up with guitarist Robert Fripp and started the imaginatively named band Giles, Giles and Fripp. It was short-lived, and about a year later, Giles, Giles and Fripp eventually morphed into the first iteration of King Crimson, a name which conjures up imagery of the devil, or perhaps a king who rules with a bloody iron fist. Either way, it's a better name than one which someone could confuse with a law firm. Peter Giles was no longer in the band, but the other two members recruited vocalist and bass player Greg Lake, and computer scientist and lyricist Peter Sinfield, who also did reluctant roadie duties from time to time. They wanted to start a different type of rock band. In fact, it's probably fair to say they wanted to do something different to rock altogether. They drew on an eclectic range of influences from classical music to jazz, folk, hymns, chamber music. And unlike most popular bands of the era, they weren't terribly influenced by the blues. They position themselves as an anti-pop band. If they played something simple and catchy, they'd change up the time signature so it sounded weird, or they'd make riffs discordant. They didn't want their music to be easy listening. This sounds more punk than anything else, but as we'll see, they're a key band in the evolution of heavy metal, and perhaps one of the most directly influential of the entire genre. As well as being musically different and somewhat challenging, their lyrical themes were dark and equally challenging, perhaps marking the beginning of the end of the hippie movement. King Crimson got their big breakthrough not long after forming. The Rolling Stones organised a free gig in Hyde Park on the 5th of July 1969. Brian Jones sadly passed away two days prior and the gig was eventually dedicated to his memory. For King Crimson though, they took to the stage with 250,000 people waiting to hear the Rolling Stones. Very few, if any, in that audience knew who King Crimson were. They blasted through 21st century schizoid man and the audience was silenced. Their reactions were delayed as they were processing what they'd just heard. Despite putting themselves in a position to actively sound difficult, they were an overnight success. <laughs> A huge audience and all that press were hooked on this darker, frantic and complex heavy music. It's hard to imagine what that must be like, expecting the rhythm and blues of the Rolling Stones and getting the musical equivalent of a panic attack. <laughs> to a late 60s audience, popular music was fairly light-hearted. The zeitgeist was about free love, protest, love yourself, do what you want to do and get what you deserve. The Doors got pretty dark by singing about death and existential dread of life, but their solution was to have sex and get high. 
King Crimson portrayed the darkness of life, the tragedies that happen on a daily basis, the ugly makeup of Western society and where it's heading, but there's no resolution. The song was released in 1969 on the album In the Court of the Crimson King, adorned with a red-faced man panicking and screaming, a vision which graphically sums up Schizoid Man well. I used to think this song was about how increased commercialization in society was slowly separating us from reality, how capitalism seeks to detach us from the natural world and divide us as humans, in essence giving us shinier, fancier toys to play with, which in turn makes us want more, which in turn separates us further from the natural world and each other, etc. It talks of the next generation of adults being schizophrenic as the norm, the 21st century schizoid man. And thinking about it, that would actually be uh, <laughs> my friends and me, and <laughs> perhaps Sinfield isn't that wrong. But it's a lyrically deep and complex song with much meaning behind it, and further reading taught me another meaning which Sinfield is more direct about. 1967 to 69 was the height of the Vietnam War. For the first time, war conducted by a major nation was being televised and relayed back to the world in almost real time. Infamous images of napalm-destroying villages, the brutal execution of prisoners of war, and reel after reel of violence against innocent civilians and GIs who didn't want to be there, with their families watching on wanting them home. This hellscape was played out for the boomer generation and its parents to see. After two horrific world wars and now this, what was the point in war? What did it achieve and for whom? This permeated much of society and is one of the reasons society shifted from being religious and patriotic to, well, the swinging 60s. Bands of this era wrote protest songs about the Vietnam War, but they were a product of the flower power generation. The Doors, The Rolling Stones, Buffalo Springfield, Bob Dylan, amongst many others, all released authentic anti-war songs which have their place. But to hear, say, Unknown Soldier sandwiched between Girl I Love You and Light My Fire at a Doors gig takes away the blunt reality of war, maybe. Credence Clearwater Revival with Fortunate Son, perhaps the most iconic song of the Vietnam War. It expresses the class divisions and hypocrisy at the time, as opposed to the actual war itself, wrapped up in a catchy blues rock song. It's good to speak up about political issues, and I hold nothing against these bands for doing that. In fact, it makes me like them more. They all wrote and released good songs for good courses, but what it is that I'm getting at is that they were catchy, and in their wider context, there was a lot of this middle-class hope. 21st century Schizoid Man was not written to be catchy and there is certainly no hope depicted in the song or the wider context of the band. It explains how sending soldiers off to war will result in a generation of schizophrenic men suffering from PTSD and those in charge make decisions resulting in death or permanent suffering for many, only thinking about their own greed. There's still this feeling of disassociation throughout the song Possibly because it's about a conflict which was so far away and so detached from the actual safety of Americans at home. The domino theory that this war was based on was false. It almost seems like war is this activity that happens far away. Similar to mass production relying on factories and developing economies, 
War will also happen far away in developing economies. But it's a song of contrast, both musically and lyrically. Each line seemed to contrast the one preceding it. Sometimes each word contrasts the next. A really good example of this is the last verse. Death's seed, blind man's greed. Poets starve and children bleed. Nothing he's got he really needs. The first and third lines are about the greed of the ruling class and the lack of value they place on human life. And inserted between those lines, between this picture of the ruling class, is a line about the suffering of those who are forced into war. Even the opening words, death seed, is an oxymoron. A seed brings life, yet a death seed just spreads death the more it grows. It's a very negative song, and there's no respite from the greed, death, or war. This represents the schizophrenia of the 21st century man, and possibly the schizophrenia of a warmongering society. There can be greed, calm, and excess in one part, and barbed wire, children's suffering, and starvation in another. Musically, there's this juxtaposition of calm and frantic. The verse and choruses are slow, with the instrumental middle section speeding up. There's some method to the verse and chorus. They play this powerful riff. It's based on a C minor pentatonic, which, despite their efforts, is very catchy, but finishes with a chromatic run from F to G, which uh, throws the ear slightly. The verse has these powerful downstroke staccatoed chords, whilst Lake shouts these rich lyrics through a distorted microphone. There were distorted vocals before King Crimson, but it was more a function of bad quality mics or recording on a budget. For King Crimson, the distortion was added in post-production, a purposely put effect to make the song sound slightly harder to hear. After two plays, the verse and chorus give way to the middle section. Faster than the verses, it's a free jam of the band showcasing more of their jazz and big band influences, yet with their own signature sounds. There are great bass runs underpinning discordant saxophones and drums frantically thrashing away. The guitar wails away underneath the horns until it's given space to ring out. Fripp actually plays some amazing guitar here. It's not too technical, and I think this is what sets them apart from their contemporaries as well. It works for the song, making noise where noise is needed. Other blues-based rock bands, it feels, place the guitar solo of the utmost importance. Here, the song itself and the feeling of the song is what's important. It helps create this feeling of panic and isolation. As Fripp slowly strikes each note, letting them ring out, it gives way to yet another discordant horn solo. Again, a real contrast of fast and slow, music and cacophony. It sounds almost like the instruments are playing their own parts at the same time, taking the listener off in different directions. They come back together to play the main riff of the middle section with Fripp playing his drawn out solo and Lake walking the bass underneath. All instruments come together in unison and play this big band-esque run perfectly and it's really good to hear live and then drop back into that riff. This contrasts the togetherness disassociation of the band mimicking the schizophrenia of the 21st century man. Some relief comes when the band takes us back into the song, slowing the tempo and making that main verse riff sound even heavier, and we hear Lake's distorted vocals shout the last verse. 
I'm not sure there are many other songs, even today, which can take a listener on such a journey whilst portraying such strong emotions of schizophrenia and discomfort, all whilst being so good to listen to. All these contrasts of loud and quiet, slow and fast, together and apart, come from this idea of the schizophrenic man late 60s society was creating. Even the production sounds a bit off. The song doesn't sound as heavy as it should feel. The production is kind of thin. I've heard others refer to it as anemic. It leaves this slight impression of dissatisfaction and wanting something a bit more, like it should have hit harder, despite actually being an incredibly hard-hitting song. The band wrote this song in their rehearsal space, a tiny basement beneath a greasy spoon. For our non-British listeners, that's a cheap cafe serving fry-ups, and they all seem to have this layer of grease over everything. They piled everything in there, 100 watt Marshall stacks, drums with a double bass, a horn section. They were literally on top of each other. I can only imagine the cramped awkwardness that would eventually pervade into their music and tracks like 21st Century. It's far less pleasant than the blues-based rock of Jimi Hendrix or Cream their audience was listening to at the time. The structure is so different from most other songs. And while some bands did have longer songs or played with song structure, it was an exception. Nonetheless, it's still engaging. It has that hook. But most of all, it made listeners think. The line between classical music, thinking man's music, and pop just got a whole lot thinner. Yet, it was still accessible to most people in ways classical music isn't. 21st century builds this excitement. It tells a story and creates emotions and everything works towards the goal of passing these emotions onto the listener. There's no musical ego to please in favor of the song. No one demanding a solo. I, I do want to point out the irony of saying that phrase. Um, as Fripp's ego has been challenging for some to work with, to uh, say the least. This really stands out from other popular bands at the time, who seemed so much more rigid in their song structures. What I find interesting is this song is so frenetic, so frantic, so heavy. It opens the album with such authority and excitement, yet it dissipates immediately once the song is finished and is not felt again. The rest of In the Court of the Crimson King is far more classical, jazz and folky, and leaves the proto-metal behind. It took me a long time to appreciate the rest of the album. It's a good album, and I do appreciate it now, of course, but it's hard to get into what is essentially a different genre album after the promise of such a technical heavy rock song. This song was never really released as a single. It was released as a B-side some years later, but the album did well, probably from this song. It reached number five in the UK charts and 28 in the Billboard 200. The band experienced something of a revolving door in terms of personnel, with Fripp being the only consistent member. Fripp would use this to his advantage though, and bring in different musicians, different instrumentation, and each album would be unique to that lineup. Despite this, their next two albums got mixed reviews from the press. I wonder if this was because they were inventing something which hadn't really been done before. Journalists, especially at the time, found it hard to place music outside of an established genre. They played guitars, drums, keys, and had miscellaneous other instruments, so were seen as rock. 
but their music didn't sound like it. And this probably confused a lot of journalists, hence the negative reviews. But they weren't rock. They came from somewhere else completely and were attempting something different. Album number four, Lark's Tongue in Aspic, captured the attention of both journalists and fans again. It has been described as a stunning return to form by many, claiming it's just as good as in the court of the Crimson King. However, for Fripp and Friends, I'm not sure if that would be a compliment. But nonetheless, it's a good album and worth listening to. I reminded myself of that album whilst writing this episode, as it's been a really long time since I listened to it. Track opener has moments reminiscent of math rock and metalcore bands like Dillinger Escape Plan. It has this two-handed discordant guitar tapping after these fuzz-ridden slow chord punches, followed by more tempo and section changes randomly. Sure enough, a quick search brings up an interview with Ben Weinman, who cites King Crimson as an influence. Most genres emerge as an evolution of a similar one before it, usually with one or two breakthrough artists really pushing it. No artist has ever created a genre from nothing, but King Crimson is one of the most revolutionary, coming as close as possible. With their wide range of influences, they repurposed many existing genres into this new, exciting and different style of music called progressive rock, or prog rock. And after them, many bands gave notoriety in their wake. Greg Lake's new, imaginatively named Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Gentle Giant, yes, Jethro Tull, Genesis. Of course, without King Crimson, we wouldn't have Rush and some of Metal's biggest names like Tool, Primus, Dream Theater, Gajira, The Mars Volta, At The Drive-In, and many more. All of which cite King Crimson as an influence directly or indirectly. So many metal bands from a range of different subgenres use prog elements in their songwriting. The big four of thrash, they all utilize odd time signatures, complex song structures, and advanced playing. Equally, we hear much technical playing in death metal bands like Cannibal Corpse and Death. King Crimson's production techniques, distorted vocals, thin production, purposely making the record sound bad. This is something we will revisit when we discuss some extreme metal bands and how they took the same stance on recording. Understandably, a song which is so influential has been covered numerous times. Ozzy Osbourne and Maynard James Keenan have released their own versions of it, to name a couple. My favourite, which I'll post to my Twitter, is the Flaming Lips version. I'm not really a fan of the Flaming Lips, I mean, it's just not my kind of music, but this cover they do is fantastic. I feel it captures that weird side to the song, that schizophrenic side in a contemporary context. Bad Religion reference it in their song, 21st Century Digital Boy. Notable anti-Semite Kanye West sampled it on his 2010 track, Power. I remember it being released. I had just graduated from my music degree and was at my most bitter. I was talking about the King Crimson version to a friend and someone else chimed in. Oh yeah, that's that Kanye West song. I was livid. I mean, she meant no harm, and once I'd gotten over myself, I did realise that Kanye is bringing this song to a whole new demographic, way larger than King Crimson can reach, and I appreciate that. I appreciate less his views on Hitler. I hope more bands cover and sample this song in their own styles, and I look forward to seeing what artists can do with such a jumble of a song. 
Jimi Hendrix did his bit, tearing apart music by showing what can really be done with a guitar, and King Crimson did the same thing but with songwriting. Hendrix did see King Crimson live and said they're the best band in the world. I wish I could go back to that first concert they did in Hyde Park with no knowledge of music past that point and hear them to understand what that feeling must be like to hear something so completely new. It came at a time when the hippie movement was just past its peak and the realities of life were coming back. The 60s were ending and the revolution it promised still hadn't happened. Cracks were showing in the free love movement and a darkness was creeping into the world. Next episode, we'll look at a band who, at this time, knew only darkness and brought it to the world with their song, Black Sabbath. If you'd like to get in touch, you can contact me on Twitter at AHOHM100. I'll also share extra resources there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>